The purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior. And that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. This is the 50th sermon we've begun with that statement. And I didn't make it up. It actually comes from our text this morning. John tells us plainly how and why he wrote his gospel. John is the gospel of belief. From start to finish, John's gospel is written so that sinners and saints alike would see the Lord Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, they would believe. So let's open our Bibles to John's gospel. Our text for this morning is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, John 20, 19 through 31. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles from a chair near you, you'll find our text beginning on page 906. It's 906. Last week, John recorded how he himself, at the sight of the empty grave linens and folded face cloth, believed the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary saw the empty tomb but was still blinded by grief until the Lord Jesus calls her by name and her blindness was washed away by the sight of the Lord Jesus. John has been so faithful to give us portraits of people moving from confusion to belief, from sorrow to faith. And today he'll give us two more journeys. So follow on now as I read John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, It is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fearful pessimism and disbelieving skepticism are common experiences for most people. I am often pessimistic and skeptical. As I was working through this text this week, I was wondering, why am I this way? Maybe, maybe if you're pessimistic at times and skeptical at times, you've wondered the same thing about yourself. Why am I this way? And to be honest, friends, as I thought about it, I don't think I was always this way. For much of my early life, I was a general, generally, generally positive about life, about people, about experiences, even positive about God. But if I'm honest with you, I need to tell you and confess that I am not a very positive person anymore. I am prone to fearful pessimism and disbelieving skepticism. I am not very trusting of people, the government, friends, authorities, or weathermen. You name it, in almost every situation, I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, but really? If I went and saw a counselor or a therapist, they might connect my outlook to experiences in my childhood or catastrophic events that have happened or life changes that I've gone through that didn't go as planned. And it could be that those experiences do play a heavy part in my negative outlook. But in thinking this week, what dawned on me is how my fearful pessimism and my disbelieving skepticism are so often directed outward, not inward. I'm pessimistic about the world or experiences or people or my life because I think I should control them. Generally, I think if I was truly in charge of time, space, and all the other humans in the world, I wouldn't have to fear or worry because I could have my way always. There's nothing to be pessimistic about. I'm always getting my way. My pessimism is really just a form of self-worship. I think the same is true with my skepticism. I'm not skeptical about my mind or my observations or my conclusions or my thought processes. No, it's everyone else that has faulty thinking and faulty information and faulty faculties. And I'd bet you're like me. Let me use a non-controversial example. Is the coronavirus vaccine a marvel of modern medicine or a child-killing death serum? Are masks, life-saving, health-preserving measures, or a slow descent into totalitarian governmental oppression? Whatever your position on these two mundane, non-controversial issues, you are probably skeptical of those you don't agree with. But you're not skeptical of yourself. In fact, given the opportunity, you can and will and do marshal all of your evidence and your arguments to support the conclusion that you have, but you rarely ask, am I really sufficient to evaluate the data? I mean, you assume you are. You're not skeptical of yourself. You're skeptical of everyone you don't agree with. What does the risen Lord Jesus have to do with this? 
Like, what does the risen Lord Jesus have to do with fearful pessimism and disbelieving skepticism? Is there any hope for us? I mean, is there any hope for us pessimists and skeptics this morning? In the person of Jesus Christ. Well, I think our text speaks to those questions. So first, let me show you that Jesus is the Savior of fearful pessimists. Jesus is the Savior of fearful pessimists. So last week, if you remember, we saw three people react to the resurrection of Jesus. Mary grieved about, about Jesus' death until Jesus opened her eyes with his voice. How telling. John sees an empty tomb piled up with evidence and believes. Peter sees and is dumbfounded, unsure what to think about reality. And Jesus, if you remember, he sent Mary to go back to the disciples and tell them that he was alive, that he would be ascending to the Father. And I got to admit, sometimes I miss the obvious. Probably most times I miss the obvious. And I missed something last week, so this is bonus. Who does Jesus send Mary to in verse 17 of the text last week? Look at that verse again. Jesus says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. D.A. Carson notes beautifully, because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, his disciples come to share in his sonship with the Father. That's what I'm talking about. It's a good start. But even here, even better is my man J.C. Ryle, whom you all should be reading. And he writes, he, that is Jesus, bids Mary Magdalene to carry a message to them as his brethren. He bids her tell them that his father was their father, that his God, their God. It was but three days before that they had forsaken him shamefully and fled. Yet this merciful master speaks as if all is forgiven and forgotten. And Mary obeyed Jesus, right? We saw it. He gave glorious testimony. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. How would the disciples react? This is amazing news. How are they going to react? Are they going to party? No. The next verse actually tells us exactly what they did. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The disciples were still controlled by fear, such that even the testimony of a fellow believer, fellow follower of Jesus, could not lift the pessimistic fears from their heavy hearts. In effect, their actions say, so what if Jesus is raised? If the Jews killed him last time, they might kill us. They might just kill him a second time. I mean, fear is in the driver's seat here. And it's not an irrational fear, friends. Like, look, they're not fearing something that's irrational. Their fear is rational. Think of all that had happened. But, but hear me, friends. Just because fear is rational doesn't make it right. About a month ago, we talked about the danger of disordered fears, looking at how Pilate and Peter acted out of fear of man rather than fear of the Lord. And this disorder led them to utter foolishness and sin. And that song is on repeat here in this text. They were afraid and pessimistic about the whole scenario. It didn't seem to them that the resurrection of their teacher, if it actually happened, would really change anything about the situation they were in. 
The right response to such a testimony from Mary would have been joy and courage, but their response is fear and hiding. Maybe they were nervous at the thought of seeing Jesus. Almost every one of them had played the coward and ran away. Or they denied Jesus when the time for courage came. Their fearful pessimism was directed outwards, not inwards. They didn't question their own assumptions. Their own assumptions that led them to hide behind locked doors. They weren't questioning that plan. Their pessimistic outlook on the outside world and a positive outlook on their own solution to hide. They didn't question their impulse. Rather, they questioned the reality of the resurrection of their Lord Jesus. But man, were they in for a jolt, right? If you're reading the text... Because as they quivered in fear of man, the risen Lord Jesus appears in the room among them. Look, I don't want to be irreverent, but I, I imagine Jesus got a kick out of this. I, I'm, not being, I'm not a blasphemer. I just think that he had to get a kick out of this. I mean, it's just really fun to scare someone. In fact, you should know I terrorize our pastoral assistant. He's just so scarable. He is likely to develop deep anxiety issues in his life, and it's my fault. I did it. (laughs) And I I, I can't help myself. So so my kids regularly want to know when we sit down to dinner, did you get Caleb today? And I tell them the tales, and we laugh hysterically because they're my kids. They like the things I like. But I've got nothing on the resurrected Jesus, right? Like, like, John doesn't tell us how. He just says he moves through locked doors, plural, and appears fully physical in their presence. John says, I, I mean, I love this because he, what, what is he going to say? Jesus came and stood among them. That's all we get. The, the risen Lord, Jesus, he, he could not be held back by physical obstacles. His resurrected body had changed. His resurrected body wasn't bound by the same limits that it had prior to his death. One grammar scholar notes, it would appear that one of the characteristics of the resurrection body of Jesus was his ability to dematerialize and materialize at will. Amazing. Trekkies? Am I right? Yes? And the words, I mean, it's amazing. He, he comes there, he, he appears among them, and Jesus speaks. What does he say? What does he say to these fear-filled disciples? He gives them a deep word of resounding comfort. Peace be with you. I mean, if there's a better word he could speak to these quivering disciples, what is it? Consumed by fearful pessimism, Jesus speaks peace. Jesus shows his wounds to his brothers. And look at their reaction in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Fear replaced by gladness. Pessimism replaced by peace. Let me ask you something. What has actually changed for them? What's actually different? Enemies in danger are still right outside of those doors. All the same. 
Brothers and sisters, what changed was the presence of Jesus. Dispelling fear, dispelling pessimism. What comfort for us here if we take it? I mean, you can't control the circumstances of your life. You have no idea what's coming in your future. This could drive you to panic or doomsday prepping or frantic action, or maybe you'll even lock yourself and your family away from the world out of fear. But if you're a Christian, you can fight that fear with the reality of Jesus' presence with you through the Holy Spirit. He was physically present with the disciples in this moment, but he has also told them that he's returning to the Father, and they will have a helper who will come to them. The Holy Spirit through whom they will know the very presence of Christ with them, always. Looking at the world around us and the circumstances of life, it's easy to become fearfully pessimistic about everything. And yet, if you and I would open our eyes and see the risen Lord Jesus present with us through the Holy Spirit, Hope awakens. Optimism is possible and real. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Are you? Are you? As you behold Jesus through their eyewitness testimony this morning, is your heart gladdened? Now, Christianity doesn't come with a set of rose-colored glasses. If you've been told that, you've been lied to. There are no promises in this text that suffering, trial, and difficulty will disappear if you trust in Jesus. Yet, for, for a Christian, optimism is possible because we have a risen Savior. The resurrection is proof <clears throat> that Jesus will not linger one second longer than necessary <clears throat> to make all things new. That he will not fail to rescue every one of his lost sheep. And that the Lord Jesus will not fail to wipe away every tear from our eyes in the new heavens and the new earth. You know what wiping tears away assumes? Not a trick question. It assumes we have tears. Surely, these disciples would shed many tears before they died. Many of them martyred. But the reality of the pain and trouble and fears and sufferings of this life could not touch their confident hope because Jesus is alive. Because the peace Jesus gives to them was the peace that he had won for them. Andreas Kostenberger says, in Jesus' case, peace was uniquely his gift to his followers by virtue of his vicarious sacrificial death on the cross. What that means is this. The peace Jesus offers to these disciples is peace that only he can give. The disciples were sinners who needed a sacrificial death in their place for the forgiveness of their sins, and Jesus had done it. And the promise of the gospel is that the wrath of God due for sin was absorbed by Jesus in his death on the cross so that there is no wrath between God and his children. Jesus took it all. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, writes the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.1. Do you have peace in your life? If you're a Christian, the answer is now and always yes. It was given to you. It was won for you. When your life is consumed by chaos and uncertainty, I wonder, have you taken your eyes off the Lord Jesus who says to you in your fearful pessimism, peace be with you? You know, if we have peace with God for all eternity by faith in Jesus, do we really have any reason to be pessimistic? I mean, Jesus even looks at this room of disciples who just a moment ago were shaking for fear of the world and their enemies, and not only does he give them peace, he gives them purpose. He commissions them. Did you see that in verse 21? Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Jesus commissions them to continue the work that he initiated. Jesus was returning to the Father. Now the next phase of God's redemptive plan was to begin, and it would begin with this group of trembling, shaking men. I mean, there's such comfort there. The Lord doesn't demand that they prove their bravery because they were cowards. He doesn't demand that they show their systematic theological knowledge or their strategic plans for kingdom expansion. No, having forgiven their failures and their cowardice, he looks at them and says, you're my guys. You're the plan." It's your turn. Go. The gospel is not good news for people who have their lives together. It's for us, messy, disorganized cowards. And the Christian life is not a path for people who have everything figured out. That belongs to Jesus alone. Following Jesus is for frightened, pessimistic disciples like you and me. But we must keep our heart focused on and rooted in Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in chapter 15 of John's gospel? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, these disciples were cowering behind closed doors. But in just a short time, they will be proclaiming the gospel before the same enemies they had been terrified of. Jesus rose from the grave. And we have no reason to be pessimistic about our lives or our mission to declare his gospel. He sent the disciples and through them he has sent us to bear witness. He even saves pessimistic people like you and me. People who worry about the future, who are deeply afraid of other people, who assume that if the worst could happen, it's going to happen. Jesus looks at us and says, peace be with you. Now go. What comfort to a pessimistic heart. Now before we move on to our second second point, we we come upon something that may appear confusing, and it demands a a brief excursus, right? So preachers are supposed to see the weeds, don't go into the weeds, avoid the weeds. We're going to boldly go where preachers should not go, into the weeds. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. For many, there's a question of what's actually happening here. 
Mainly, how does this moment relate to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in the descent of the Holy Spirit? Does Jesus give the Holy Spirit to his disciples at this point? Or does he send the Spirit at Pentecost 50 days later? There's a lot of discussion on this. And I'm just going to present to you the top three options, give you my take, and you can go home and dig into the debate if you want. Option number one. What's happening in this verse is a symbolic act with a promise. What Jesus is saying and symbolizing when he breathes is, an, is a promise of what's going to happen at Pentecost. The argument goes there's nothing here that assumes that this is an immediate thing. Some argue that following this moment, the disciples go back to their normal routines, and then at Pentecost, they receive the promised Holy Spirit and preach boldly in the name of Jesus. So this is a promise or a precursor to the actual event. Option number two. This is John's record of Pentecost. Proponents argue that John recounts actually the sending of the Spirit. This is his version of Acts chapter 2, that there is the descent of the Spirit here, and that he and Luke wrote Acts, they're actually at odds with one another. That's option two. Option number three. Jesus does give the disciples the Holy Spirit in this moment. They are indwelled by the Holy Spirit as they believe in the risen Savior. And Acts chapter 2 is not contradictory, but describes the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples for the mission Jesus had just given. Suspenseful pause. For my money, option three makes the most sense. I think that anybody picking up this text cold would assume that Jesus is really doing something here rather than symbolizing a thing that will come later. He's preparing to ascend to his Father. His glorification has come through his death and resurrection, which was the precursor to the sending of the Spirit, according to chapters 14 through 16. And I don't think John and Luke are at odds. I think they are describing two different works of the same Spirit, indwelling here and empowering at Pentecost. Now, I may be wrong. I may be wrong, and you may fully disagree with me, but when we're in heaven and you discover I'm right, we'll be fine. It's going to be okay. The Lord imparts the Spirit to these disciples as he constitutes his new messianic assembly, the church, with these words on forgiveness. Verse 23 is actually very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, where the disciples are given the power of the keys of the kingdom, the binding and the loosing. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that these disciples have power in and of themselves to confer forgiveness. The disciples do not have ultimate authority and judgment. We're not Roman Catholic. Rather, the text, with its combination of active and passive verbs, forgive and they are forgiven, has everything to do with spirit-led proclamation. This commission that Jesus gives about forgiving and retaining sins is about evangelism. The disciples are to carry the message of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that message, when preached, divides. They are to offer and proclaim that forgiveness is real through believing in Jesus. 
The way these disciples will confer forgiveness and judgment is only through their gospel preaching. Then, as sinners respond in repentance, they will baptize them, symbolizing the gospel, and welcome them into this new assembly, the church, saying, you are forgiven. Those who respond in rejection of the gospel are not forgiven. But as John told us in chapter 3, the wrath of God remains on them. In preaching the gospel, the disciples are offering forgiveness and speaking plainly about judgment. The reality of both of those things. The same commission, friends, is carried out in the life of every Christian and every local church. And yet there's something here because one disciple is absent from this moment. And throughout church church history, he's got a nickname, right? Thomas is not just Thomas to many. He often has a word attached before his name. Anyone know his nickname? Say it out. Oh, it's a revival. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. I mean, I have a problem with volume control in my voice, and I don't want to be called Loud Mike the rest of my life. This, This poor guy... Doubting Thomas throughout the ages. But he does serve as an example of our second point in the text. Jesus is the Savior of disbelieving skeptics. Jesus is the Savior of disbelieving skeptics. Now, sometimes people divide over Thomas. Some are over-harsh, looking down on Thomas, condemning his demands and his demeanor. Some are too soft, seeing him as a sort of hero, explaining away his plain disbelief and obstinance as just having a rough time and being emotionally overwhelmed. The reality is somewhere in the middle. Thomas, like Peter and the rest of the disciples, is a failing disciple. He confidently declared that he would follow Jesus to his death, and then he ran like a coward when Jesus was arrested and tried. I mean, who does he look like? Looks like Peter, who made bold claims. I'm going to fight to the death, only to crumble in fear and denial. Well, what are we to make of these verses? As we read earlier, Thomas is not present when the disciples see the risen Jesus. We aren't told where he was, but he wasn't there. But he rejoins the disciples, and here's what should be the greatest word imaginable. Thanks, brother. And then in verse 25, look at this this text again. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I mean, you can almost feel the room, right? Thomas enters. The disciples are rushing to tell him this incredible news. You can almost hear the disciples stumbling and competing to tell him all that they had witnessed, like when your kids are all trying to tell you the same thing at the same moment. And who can blame them? They're ecstatic. Their entire universe has changed, and they have to tell one of their closest friends and fellow disciple the news. And Thomas's response, whatever the reason, is a flat rejection of his fellow disciple's testimony and a demand for more evidence than what you're telling me. 
Thomas. It didn't matter to Thomas that his closest friends and fellow followers of Jesus were unanimously bearing witness to glorious truth. Thomas' response to their testimony is, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, it's always funny when humans use God language for themselves and apply it like always, never. We always have meatloaf. You never give me what I want. Only God is immutable. He is unchanging. We are mutable. We change from day to day, month to month, year to year. But Thomas declares, my denial is immutable. Unless it's proven otherwise. And let it not be lost on us that the testimony of his closest friends, that didn't measure the burden of proof in his eyes. It's just not enough. Doesn't he sound like so many of us? Right? We're prone to skeptical doubt and unbelief, making demands for more evidence and more proof before we make a decision. And we do this with God all the time. Lord, if you will do this, I'll never doubt you. Lord, if you have, you have to show up in this situation. And if you do, I'll know and I'll believe that you're true. We're telling others, if God doesn't do what I want, he must not be real. In a very real sense, Thomas reveals our own disbelieving and skeptical nature when it comes to trusting the Lord. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon comments on Thomas. He writes, dogged, obstinate, unbelief. Some have said he was a large-hearted man who investigated truth. I do not see it. He had not gone to the tomb like Peter and John, to look at the grave clothes and to discover that Christ was not there. He does not appear to have investigated the testimony of Mary Magdalene and for the others. He was just as narrow-minded as he very well could be, as I believe modern doubters are. With all of their boasts for their wonderful thoughtfulness and liberality, we have only their own opinion. I am sure upon that matter. And when a man sounds his own trumpet, there's not much in it. I mean, Thomas expresses supreme confidence in his own ability. He thinks he has what's needed to evaluate evidence and claims. His skepticism is outward, not inward. No, he is supremely confident that if his terms are met, he has the power and capacity to test the truthfulness of the resurrection. He's skeptical of everything outside of himself. He's not skeptical of himself at all. Again, how like us Thomas is. We agree with ourselves all the time. We are supremely confident in our own wisdom and understanding, our abilities to weigh evidence and claims because we assume that we are alone, the one with whose minds and senses are are up to the task. We are so confident in our abilities and so skeptical of anything outside ourselves. What silly people we are. But praise be to God, the Lord Jesus was not done with Thomas. Jesus, ever the compassionate Savior, comes to the skeptic with the signs of his death and resurrection. 
when we see it's eight days later, and John tells us again that the disciples are holed up behind locked doors. And as the Lord Jesus, again in miraculous fashion, appears in the room, he greets them with the same peace that he greeted them with before. How sweet the peaceful greeting of Jesus is to these troubled disciples. And maybe you're a struggling Christian today. Just remember, this is the greeting he gives to you this morning. Your failures, sins, struggles do not prevent Jesus from bringing peace to you. There's a sweet treasure for every one of us who believes the Lord. And Jesus goes to Thomas. He initiates the conversation with him. He doesn't wait for Thomas to come. We don't know whether Thomas was hanging back or right there among the other disciples greeting Jesus, but we know Jesus singles Thomas out to show compassion and kindness to this skeptical, disbelieving disciple. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue by addressing Thomas's heart. You see, Thomas demanded intellectual proof that he could evaluate with his physical senses, but Jesus knows the real problem with Thomas was a disbelieving heart. And our Savior offers the evidence that Thomas demanded. But what he knows is that evidence, however overwhelming, isn't sufficient if Thomas will not believe. You remember how Scrooge debates Marley in A Christmas Carol? Yes, I can't get over the book. This is what he says. Marley, you don't believe in me? Observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. I mean, there's Marley's ghost in front of Scrooge. And Scrooge is so confident in his own ability to reason what's happening, he'd rather question his own senses than to actually believe the reality in front of him. Thomas's problem wasn't evidence. It was a willingness to believe. Which is where Jesus goes with him. And Jesus offers to meet Thomas's demands for specific evidence. This little conversation is, is so reminiscent of Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel earlier in the gospel, where he displays supernatural events, though not being physically present at the moment. He wasn't present when Dom Thomas declared his obstinate unbelief, but he knew exactly what Thomas demanded. Again, I can't improve on how J.C. Ryle explains this verse. And in fact, it's a long quote, so you'll, you can follow along on the screen. We should mark for another thing in this verse how kind and merciful Christ is to dull and slow believers. Nowhere, perhaps in all the four Gospels, do we find this part of our Lord's character so beautifully illustrated as in the story before our eyes. 
It is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas, when even the testimony of ten faithful brethren had no effect on him, and he doggedly declared, except I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands, I will not believe. But it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him or dismiss him or excommunicate him. He comes again at the end of the week and apparently for the special benefit of Thomas. He deals with him according to his weakness like a gentle nurse dealing with a froward child. Reach your finger, reach here your finger and behold my hands. Reach here your hand and thrust it into my side. If nothing but the grossest, coarsest, most material evidence could satisfy him, even that evidence was supplied. Surely, this was a love that passes knowledge and a patience that passes understanding. Jesus comes to the skeptic with proof and a command. And Thomas's hard heart is melted by the love of Jesus as he declares, my Lord and my God. Those words erupt from a heart that has stopped disbelieving and confessed faith in the risen Jesus who stood before him. Laying his skepticism down, he trusts in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus continues speaking to Thomas, this time both a gentle rebuke and a lasting word for us. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This question might have stung Thomas a bit, but it was a loving reproof from his Lord and a testimony to Thomas and the others that the rising generation of disciples would not have what they had. In fact, similarly to Thomas, we have only the testimony of these eyewitnesses as our own proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And for those of us who are Christians here today, that testimony is enough. We have moved from disbelieving skeptics to believing saints. And Jesus calls you and me blessed for our faith in him. How amazing is our Lord Jesus. And then John gives us the statement for the purpose of his gospel, a version which I have begun every sermon in this series with, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John doesn't deny that Jesus did much more than what's written about here in this gospel, but he's confident that if you open your eyes to this gospel and open your hearts to this Jesus, you will see he is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus really is the only Savior, and that by believing in Jesus, you have real eternal life in his name, which is the application of this whole text. Maybe you're pessimistic about the world. Maybe you're a Christian and all you see is society in this country spiraling further away from God and you're tempted to lock yourself away and hide from the world. Do not disbelieve, but believe. If you are in Christ, seclusion is disobedience. Squirreling yourself away from perceived threats is the opposite of what you've been called and commissioned to do by Jesus. Brother and sister, Jesus is risen. He is alive. 
Nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes for the world. Not even your and my silly pessimism. Maybe you remember that famous quote from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your life here. It's forfeit at some point. Why not give it up? And gain what can never be lost, eternal life with Jesus. And Jim Jim Elliot would do just that as he was stabbed to death with spears by people he was bringing the hope of Jesus to. And they killed him. Jim was no pessimist. And neither should we be. Let's kill disbelief with the glorious knowledge of our risen and returning king, cost what it may. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical of God, of other Christians, of the church actually surviving the threats and persecutions of the world. Maybe you're skeptical of Christianity altogether. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See and hear the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus risen from the dead. One author made the point that Christianity, if it is a false religion, is the most easily disprovable religion in world history. Because they named everybody by name. All of the eyewitnesses that could verify the accounts, they told you who they were. Go ask them. If you're going to make up a religion, you wouldn't give a laundry list of names and people who can debunk your claims. To believe that it was all an elaborate conspiracy is like some QAnon-level silliness for sure. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Maybe like me, you're a Christian who needs to repent of your skepticism. And look to the Lord and look at Jesus and believe afresh his goodness and power and love. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you have skepticism in your heart. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You can explore Christianity here with us. You can ask me or others you see here about following Jesus. We'd love to talk with you more about following the Lord purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior, and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. Let's pray.